So this morning we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, your part in building a healthy church in a pagan world. And we're in the middle of this section in 1 Corinthians about arrogance. Uh, we looked at losing our arrogance in an age of arrogance in chapter 4, losing our arrogance about the tolerance of sin in chapter 5. Last week we looked at losing our arrogance about being right and not taking our brother or sister to court, uh, to pagan courts for the resolution of our conflicts. This morning we're going to be thinking about losing our arrogance about trusting the world's values. Whether we know it or not, we live in, we swim in a culture. I know that it's easy for us to think of culture as something that you know, people in Africa have, or people in South America have, or people in Europe, they all have a culture. We're just normal. <laughs> no, we too live in a culture, and those values, almost even without thinking, are shaping how we live and how we act and how we think. And so, this morning we're going to be looking at losing our arrogance about trusting our culture's values. Now, I was going to have just one more message on this losing our arrogance and do the rest of chapter 6, but actually as I looked at it, I needed to address one particular theme, which I'll explain in a moment. And so, we're only going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11 today. And then we'll have one more message on losing our arrogance next week. Um, so let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the… Or excuse me, let me start over. I already said it wrong. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Please have a seat. This morning I'm going to have two points in a very long sermon. Just get ready, it's a long one. The first point's going to take about three minutes and the second point's going to take the rest of it. The first point is the reason we can trust the church to handle our disagreements is that believers are different by position and by practice from those that are in the world. So we're going to see the reason why we should handle our disagreements in-house is because believers are different than folks that do not know Christ. The second point, which we will take a longer time at, is this sin list that's here is presented to demonstrate that there is a clear difference in nature, belief, and practice between the world and believers. That this is what we once were, such were some of you, but now, by not by anything we've done, <laughs> heavens, not by anything we've done, but by the grace of God and the power of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are a different people. 
So let's look at the first point. The reason we can trust the church to handle our disagreements is that believers are different both by position and by practice from those who are in the world. First, Paul wants us to understand that those in the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you see that in verse 9? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the fourth of Paul's questions that he has asked here in 1 Corinthians 6. The first one was in verse 1, dare he go before the unrighteous? The second was in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The third one is in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And now here in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those in the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is controversial because our culture's values says everybody is all going to heaven no matter what they believe as long as they are sincere, right? As long as they are sincere, everybody ends up getting into God's kingdom or whatever the nice thing is that you want to imagine. The Bible is very clear that we cannot be arrogant about trusting the world's values on that. And if it's true that those who are in the world, those who are not believers in Jesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God, then Paul wants us to understand that we cannot and should not trust those people to handle the disagreements that we may have among ourselves. That's not what we should do. We shouldn't hand it over to people that, after all, aren't even going to be in the kingdom of God to handle the disagreements among those who, by God's grace, are. The second thing that Paul wants us to understand is that we believers are different in nature and in practice from the world. Notice, such were some of you. In other words, every one of these things on the list sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. There are members of the church who were all of those things. Now, probably not one person that had all of them, but everyone had some of them, right? Every one of us has some of those, and now we're changed, not by what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If that's true, then believers are different in nature, that is, What we have now in the new birth is a new creation. We're different in nature, and we are different in practice. We no longer continue in those practices because Christ has changed our life. And as a result, because we're different in nature and in practice, we can trust believers to handle disagreements among us. Well, That's point one. Aren't you wishing that point two were as quick? We're going to look at the same verses now from a different angle. The sin list that's presented here, particularly in verses nine uh, uh, nine, nine and ten, 
is to demonstrate that there is a clear difference in nature, belief, and practice between the world and believers. That we're different. Not because there's something in us. Not because we're earning it or because we're more disciplined. No, it's because of God's mercy at salvation and the work that God continues to do in in us. Now, most of the items on this list are non-controversial in what they mean. That is, everyone, even people in the world, even people in our culture, pretty much agree on what they are even if there's disagreement about how bad they are. So, for example, sexually immoral. People pretty much have an understanding of what that means. There's more about this next week when we specifically get into this subject, but the Bible holds a high view of the physical body, a high view of the connection between our bodies and our spirits, and The Bible also holds a high view of the purpose of human sexuality in the joy of marriage between one man and one woman. Anything that is of a sexual nature outside that understanding of the body, outside that understanding of the union of body and soul, and outside of the covenant of marriage is, by the Bible's definition, immoral. The second term is idolaters, the creation of our own gods. These days, this is a bigger problem than we might imagine. We can create gods out of our own opinions, and we become arrogant little gods, don't we? Or we can twist Scripture to conform to our own opinions. That is what is at work when a person justifies their sins. whether it's justification of any of the ones on this list or some other. Behind almost every sin is an idolatrous thought that more often than not is putting itself up as a god. But from the standpoint of the, you know, more substantive use of the word, at Corinth there were actual physical gods that people bowed down and worshipped, and everybody, even in the world, understood this idea of idolatry. The third on the list is adulterers. This is a specific form of sexual immorality where a person expresses unfaithfulness to one's spouse in the marital bond. The specific act is involved here, but let's understand that there are all kinds, all kinds of forms of adultery. From ongoing adulterous relationships to promiscuous acts, from pornography to acting out, to compulsive acting out many times, and in many ways, all of it is adultery. Jesus even says that if a person looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And each kind of those adulteries has their own pathology or characteristics. People, again, are pretty much agreed on that one. Uh, Thieves. We'll skip over the one uh, at the end of verse 9 only to focus on it here in a moment. But thieves in verse 10 is the next one, people who steal from others. Again, the world acknowledges, whether it acknowledges how wrong it is or not, they understand what it is. Greedy, people who not only desire what belongs to others, but they believe themselves entitled to what others have. And they work to defraud others. This is a word that's 
used back in chapter 5, verse 10 in that sin list. Drunkards, people who abuse substances. Now, alcohol is primarily in view here, but let's not let the drug abuser off the hook by his excuse that his drug of choice is not alcohol. All mind-altering substances, whether by illicit drugs or by prescription drugs or by alcohol, fit this general category, do they not, of being a person who's wanting to somehow alter in his own mind his perceptions of reality, and pretty much everybody understands that one. The next one is revilers. This is a word for verbal abuse, those who verbally abuse others. It's a word that we saw before in chapter 5, verse 11, something that often Christians can easily uh, excuse in themselves. They say, well, you know, that's my family of origin, or I've been under stress, or, you know, all thousand different excuses, but the world pretty much understands what this means. Swindlers, people who manipulate others to get what they want. Sometimes it's money, but sometimes it's something else, and you're just kind of manipulative, twisting things in order to get your way. Boy, what a list. Adds... It brings to our minds a couple of questions, doesn't it? Does, does the mention of this list and that these who do this will not inherit the kingdom of God, end of verse 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God, does this mean that if you've ever done any of these things, you won't go to heaven? Well, we'll explain that in just a moment when we get to verse 11. But there's another question. Does this mean that if you've ever done any of these after becoming a believer in Christ, you won't go to heaven? Ooh, now there's a more convicting and, frankly, a more honest question. Let me give some answers right away here. First, the person who does not feel the conviction of this list In other words, as we read it and you don't feel the weight of it and going, ooh, and not ooh, I hope they're listening, (laughs) but rather, ooh, that's me. Anybody who doesn't feel the conviction of this list likely is not a believer in Jesus. Now, the one who does feel it may not be repentant. You may feel the conviction of the list, but you might go, yeah, but it's not that bad, what and I can understand why I do this. That, too, may be cause for pause in your life to ask the question, am I really a believer in Jesus? The issue here that Paul is trying to make, the point he's trying to make is that our grounding in Christ changes our habits. And if our habits have not changed, then we ought to call into question whether or not we have a grounding in Christ, no matter how much we may protest that we do. 
so then this leads to one more question. What constitutes a habit? I've known men who, for example, are unfaithful to their wives, who have gone years without being unfaithful only to do so again, or people who go years without becoming drunk only to fall off the wagon. May I suggest humbly that this is more of a habit than you may want to admit if that's the case. One of the best guides, by the way, for us on this is our family members. Let me ask this question. What does the wife think about a habit if her husband is unfaithful only every seven years or so? The husband might say, well, you know, that's not a habit for me. But what would the wife say? Yeah, I, I, I call that a habit. Or what does a husband say about a wife who returns to drunkenness or drug abuse every seven years or so? He would say, indeed, there is a habit here. So, we must acknowledge verse 11 and its force. Such were some of you, and the ground of our hope is not in trying harder. The ground of our hope is not in our resolve. The ground of our hope is our being washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, that there is a genuine transformation that takes place in the life of the believer. The ground of our hope is in Christ, not in the keeping of this list or any of the other sin lists in the Bible. But truly having our hope in Christ means that we see progress and victory in the fight against sin. There is a clear difference in nature, in belief, and in practice between the world and, and that of believers. Now, there are two items on this list that I did not address at the end of verse 9, and they're controversial, not because they were hard to understand at the time Paul wrote them. They were very easy to understand then, but our culture has caused us to be foggy about what they mean because people seeking to justify themselves have twisted the meaning. And this has to do with two items that are translated in the English Standard Version as men who practice homosexuality. There's actually two terms here in the original that the ESV translates in one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time on this, not because this is the be-all, end-all of sins. Understand that. I'm not addressing this because it's the be-all, end-all of sins, but rather it is because our culture is hammering us over and over on this subject, and I want especially those who are young people thinking these things through who are getting hammered 
day after day after day on this in the media, in your schools, among your friends, to understand what the Bible really is saying here, okay? That's, that's my goal. And here's why I'm doing that. Martin Luther said this, if you preach the gospel in all aspects, with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at all. And so, it's very important that we touch where the culture is as we present these things. Now, there are many resources. If you're interested in following this subject, basically what I'm going to tell you is a thousand ways in which what this means is what it says. Men who practice homosexuality, okay? That's what it means. But there's going to be a whole bunch of people out there that are going to say that's not what it means and that's not bad. In fact, it's good. There's a whole bunch of ways in which people are addressing that. And I'm going to go into some detail here. And the reason I'm going into detail is so that you might know, even if you don't absorb everything I say, that you would come away saying, ah, well, there's some facts that are on the other side of this question that I didn't think about, okay? That's the main reason why I want you to think about it, is that there's just some real facts that I've got to consider, okay? And there's tons of resources. If you want to research this thing, you should look at the sources not from the world, but from people who have carefully thought through the biblical data. Uh, here's five that are from my bookshelf. Uh, the first one there is God and the Gay Christian response to Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines is a guy who's says he's an evangelical and says that homosexual behavior is perfectly legitimate today because the stuff that Paul was writing against isn't something that we're involved in now. And loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships are just fine in the Bible and they're just fine now. And this is a book written by the faculty at Southern Seminary, Responding Divines. There's actually better responses out there than this book. I don't think this book was particularly that effective. But the reason why I put the book up there is, A, it's on my shelf, and secondly, <laughs> uh, it addresses a current topic, okay? Um, this, there's other things that are out there, and if you want those resources, I can, I can direct you to them. The second one is Sam Elbury's really good book called Is God Anti-Gay? And Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction. I think Elbury writes from a point of view that's very good and is very helpful to us. A third one is Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? I got a lot of some resources from DeYoung's book as far as responding to some of the objections that people make to our understanding of this text from that book. The one at the bottom, Desire and Deceit, The Real Cost of New Sexual Tolerance by Al Mohler is an important book because there's a little section in that book that explains how it was that homosexuality became a civil rights issue rather than a sexual morality issue. It was a very clever advertising campaign that went on in the United States, and as a result of that very clever advertising campaign, our minds have been washed by our culture into thinking that this is a civil rights issue when in fact it's not. And Frankly, the two guys who pushed for this civil rights campaign were advertisers from Madison Avenue, New York City, and they have been astonished at the success of their campaign. 
And then the last one is same-sex attraction in the church, the surprising plausibility of the celibate life. I'm going to say more about this, not just today, but when we get to chapter 7. It's a discouraging thing that the evangelical church, particularly in America, has thought of singleness as somehow a judgment or somehow in a negative light rather than as uh, something that is a plausible way for us to serve the Lord Jesus. And so I think there's a, that book is very helpful along that line. There's many other resources. I would add Robert Gagnon is another wonderful writer on the subject. Um, let me give you a couple of preliminaries as we approach this subject. First, we need to prepare ourselves, and we need to prepare our younger ones in our church to be able to answer the objections of those promoting homosexuality in our culture. We're largely unprepared for dialogue with the culture. They shout civil rights and we kind of crumble. Um, it's not enough merely to vent frustration over the progress of the homosexual agenda. In other words, if you're in your home and you have young ones and you just kind of vent about how bad it is, that's not sufficient. All they're going to conclude is that you are a weird old person. That's all they're going to conclude. The only way you're going to be able to engage is to engage in the specific issues and to talk about them with a point of view of having understood what the issues are. That's part of why we're doing this this morning. We must understand for ourselves why this is not a civil rights issue. What is at risk for everybody? A lot of people say, well, what's the big deal? Why can't we just do live and let live? What is at risk? We must educate ourselves so that we can enter into the discussion with our culture, recognizing, of course, that in some ways that's passed us by, and no matter what we say that would oppose it, people just dismiss us. Second preliminary consideration is that we must continue to love sinners. Everybody on this list, everybody who's doing everything on this list, God calls us to love them. We are not by nature of a different category than those who are advancing homosexuality or idolatry or adultery or thieving or greedy or substance abuse. We're, we're no different. We are sinners deserving God's judgment. As Christians, we possess a new nature solely by God's mercy and grace. We do not boast in ourselves. So if people bring up the objection, how dare you speak against my life or my habit? I'm not, I'm not speaking against you or your habits. I'm just saying this is what God's Word says. We've got nothing to boast about except in the Lord. And we must have compassion even where people vehemently and perhaps even physically violently object to our viewpoint, we must have compassion for those enslaved to soul-destroying sin and seek to share the gospel of Jesus with them. The gospel offers hope to anyone who wishes to be free from sin and to enjoy God. The gospel points all sinners to Jesus. And we boast that there is victory at the cross of Christ. 
Well, with that in mind, let's dive into the end of verse 10. These two phrases that are translated here, men who practice homosexuality. The King James Version translates these two phrases, uh, these two words at terms as effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. That was a euphemistic way, a way of saying things without offense to little ones, for example, a euphemistic way of saying the two partners in male homosexual acts. Now today, these terms are being twisted. Matthew Vines, as I've mentioned earlier, wants to argue that one can hold to the authority of Scripture and believe in homosexual marriage and homosexual acts as perfectly fine for the believer. And this false teaching has largely influenced Christian learning institutions. You would be shocked by the debates going on in what we would term conservative evangelical institutions. You would be shocked by it if you are not aware. It's influencing large church ministries. It's influencing how our children are thinking about the question. Now, there's six texts of Scripture on the subject, and Vine seeks to overturn 2,000 years of unanimous understanding of these texts. So how do we refute the current parade of Scripture twisting? Why has there been such a growth in the acceptance of such Scripture twisting? I want to suggest that if we take the world of how pornography is easily available to everyone of any age, combined with the breakdown of the true fellowship of the real family, combined with clever PR campaigns to connect this issue to civil rights, and voila, we have Scripture twisting. The church should respond to this in several ways. First, we need to recognize such were some of you. That the church should welcome people who have and maybe continue to wrestle with same-sex attraction while at the same time a readiness to welcome sinners who do not know Jesus and saying that change is possible not by our manipulations but by the power of the cross as the agent of that change. And the readiness to accept radical change in all of our lives because of the gospel. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. We haven't thought about that enough. I mean, deny who I am, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That includes, I think, in the community of the saints, an acceptance of singleness as a viable option for life. Now, these two items on this list have been called into question, not because they lack clarity from Paul's day, but because people want to say that the Bible doesn't address the question of monogamous loving homosexuality. They say there's, there's such a thing today as monogamous loving homosexuality, and that's not what Paul is addressing. 
What they want it to mean is a young boy being taken advantage of with a man who is promiscuous and or violent. But note carefully that these objections are all designed to justify sinful behavior. That's what the whole intent of it is, is to justify one's sin. So let's look at some of these objections. There's eight of them here, so you can see now the sermon's getting longer. (laughs) Uh, One, Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexual acts. Well, in Mark chapter 7, he addresses with condemnation anyone who engages in sexual immorality, and the word is a general term. And I love what Sam Elberry says about this. He says, if I'm addressing a group of people and I say, I'm going to give everybody, everybody here $1,000, and you come up after the service to Sam and you say, well, I'm ready for my $1,000, and you say, and Sam would say, yeah, I addressed everybody, but I didn't address you. You're not getting $1,000. You'd say, there's something wrong with that, right? So to use the general term means that it includes all manner of the specifics. Secondly, when Jesus was talking about human sexuality, he went back to Genesis chapter 2. Have you not heard that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother, two gendered people that are in a monogamous relationship with one another, and be joined to his wife, singular, denying the idea of polygamy and denying the idea of same-sex marriage, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus did address it in the general context, if not the specific. Homosexual practice condemned in the Bible, people say, is not two people in loving, committed relationship. Well, the contention is that those things were uncommon if non-existent in the ancient world. That's just not true. Plato, you've all heard his name even if you've never read anything of him, right? Plato is quoting the poet Aristophanes and he says, these are they who are wondrously thrilled with affection and intimacy and love and are hardly to be induced to leave each other's side for a single moment. They continue together throughout life, though they could not even say that what they would have with one another. That sounds exactly like what's being described today. Paul was not unaware of these when he termed this these two phrases. The rabbinic tradition at the time of Paul condemns such relationships in Judaism. I've got all kinds of texts on that, but one is um, this uh, Testament of Naphtali, which says that uh, don't become like Sodom who departed from the order of nature. There's some who suggest that the concept of sexual orientation is an entirely modern phenomenon. That is, that in ancient times they didn't have such an awareness of sexual orientation. Um, And that if Paul had understood that, he might have changed his mind about homosexual practice. Um, Here I'm helped by my son Wynn, who now here's a little commercial. Um, Wynn, along with several others, are teaching 
ABF electives beginning next week. I'd encourage you not just to consider his on apologetics, but all of the different offerings. I wish I could go to all of them. They're really great. So make sure you sign up for one and get involved in one of those. But my son, commercial over, my son Wynn says uh, that, that, that in fact, in ancient times, people did understand about this idea of orientation. It wasn't just the idea of actions. So, for example, these people have no natural interest in wiving and getting children, but only to do these things under stress of custom, quite contented to live together, unwedded all their days. That's, again, Plato quoting Aristophanes. No natural interest in wiving thrilled with affection and intimacy and love. It sounds exactly like the modern conception of homosexual orientation. Vines asserts that homosexual practice was never considered contrary to nature, but in fact, it's all through Greco-Roman literature and Jewish literature, and the, the fact that the, ancients, the more the ancients valued women, the less likely they were to affirm same-sex pairing. Vines wants to say that it's all because of the patriarchy and misogyny when in fact that the literature says everything different. Vines says that an anatomical gender complementarity is a modern concept rather than that shaped by ancient thought. But the Greek sources also condemn homosexual practice as, quote, not from nature. So here's the point. Vines claims the ancients had no conception of sexual orientation. It's not true. He claims that ancient sexual practice was exploitative and excessive. Again, not true. He claims that the ancients only understood natural and unnatural in terms of protecting the patriarchy or misogyny. Again, not true. Vines assumes that Paul's thought world background was primarily Greek. That's not true. It was Jewish. The point is that this idea that homosexual practice and condemned in the Bible is not two people in a loving, committed relationship is simply contrary to the facts. Thirdly, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned for their lack of hospitality and for their violence, not for homosexual practice. Now, it is true that Ezekiel 16 uh, condemns Sodom and Gomorrah for their lack of hospitality and for their violence. But it also uses the word abomination, which is the word that is used in Leviticus about their sexual practices. And the earliest Jewish interpreters knew that this was about homosexual sex, and Jude 7 specifically condemns it as from Sodom and Gomorrah. Fourthly, the Levitical laws are arbitrary, and even if they address homosexual behavior, they no longer apply. You know, people say, well, what about charging interest on loans or wearing clothes with two kinds of fabric? Or what about eating bacon? The Bible in Leviticus condemns all those, so we should just lump it all together and say it's all irrelevant. Well, let me give you three responses. First, we should never look at the Bible and start with irrelevance. We should humbly always read the Bible starting with relevance. How is this relevant? Secondly, Paul's use of his unique word here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 
is something that is derived from combining two words in the Leviticus text. So Paul is specifically connecting his view to Leviticus as a pl- applicative. And thirdly, the New Testament specifically affirms this prohibition, which it does not do in some of those other things that are brought about. Another objection is that you're on the wrong side of history here. You know, history has a flow about it, and you you guys are just old fogies who better get on the ship uh, or get on the train or get on the plane before it leaves the station, right? Uh, You're kind of like a flat earther if you believe that homosexual actions are wrong. We live in a more enlightened age, people say. Well, here's the answer. First, all of us like to think that we're more enlightened than our forebears, right? We all like to think that. I mean, just think of it. If you're 17, you look at somebody that's 35 as an old guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about. And if you're 35, you look at somebody that's 60 as an old guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about. And if you're 60, you look at somebody that's 80 and says they're an old guy, doesn't know what he's talking about. And if you're 80, you look at a 95-year-old and you go, they're an old guy who doesn't know what he thinks about. what he's talking about. And those that are 95 just think, I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) We all like to think that we're better, more enlightened than our forebears. But I want you to know that that is a Marxist assumption. The idea that history is on an arc always leading to progress. That comes right out of Karl Marx the progressive view of history. And it simply is not true. There are ideas that come out that are horrible, bad, destructive ideas. Let me give one example. The eugenics movement at the beginning of the 20th century. It was an idea that said, you know, we can handle this race problem by just getting rid of black people. Our president, President Woodrow Wilson, actually believed in eugenics. Is that not horrific? And there was another guy who applied eugenics and the eugenic philosophy of life in a huge way. His name was Adolf Hitler, who decided, I'm going to apply eugenics to the Jewish problem, you see. No, there are some ideas that come along that are not progress. New ideas can be wrong. And one of the things that's hidden behind this idea, you're on the wrong side of the history, is the distortion that Christianity is A, against science, and B, against genuine progress. And neither are true. Genuine science and genuine progress, Christianity is for. Uh, Sixth idea. The church is supposed to be an accepting place for broken people. Now, this is a compelling idea, isn't it? And it is. The church is an accepting place for broken people. But the idea that we should accept people who claim to be believers in Jesus, who want to continue in purposeful, active sin and we should accept them everywhere in the church is a wrong idea that was addressed in chapter 5. You know, a man who has his father's wife says, 
throw him out of the church. No, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be accepting place for broken people? Yes. And let me tell you, if you've never put your faith and hope in Christ, our goal is not here at East White Oak to get you to change your behavior. That's not our goal. You're welcome here as long as you want to come and hear the truth from God's Word. But our ambition is that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and He will change your life. Not we, He will change your life. The power of the cross, the power of the Spirit of God. So if you don't know Jesus, you've never professed your faith in Him, no matter where you're at on this sin list, you could be doing them all, all the time, and you're welcome here, okay? But let a person be a believer in Jesus, and we need to love you enough to say, either change your profession or have the cross of Christ change your life. You see, repentance is a theme all through the Bible. Ezekiel 18, repent and turn from your transgressions. John the Baptist, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, in his first sermons, repent and believe in the gospel. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. Paul, on Mars Hill, God commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, the church welcomes unbelievers in its midst, but the church is not to consist of an unrepentant people, no matter the sin. Broken and imperfect people, yes, every day. Unrepentant people, no. Repentance involves a change of mind about yourself, about sin, about God, and then allows God to change you. Number seven. The Bible could not possibly condemn something that is an inheritant identity of a person. A person cannot help how they are. In fact, that is how God made them. God is a God of love. Well, God is love. And that love means that He will not accept sinful behavior. Homosexual behavior is not an inherent identity of a person. You are not your sexuality. You are way more than your sexuality. You're so much more. No matter how your sexuality is holy or is broken. And God can give you victory. You may be one who is wrestling deeply with this question of same-sex attraction. And I simply want to tell you that we are with you in that fight, just as we are with everyone who is greedy or is verbally abusive or swindling. <laughs> we are with you in that fight to declare to you that the cross of Christ can give us victory over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. What God made and what sin broke are important to distinguish. The sin that broke us first was Adam and Eve's, wasn't it? So we're all marred by that. We all have a, we're all a mess. The sin that broke you doesn't even have to be your sin. It can be your cultures feeding you that this is all good, whatever one of this list is. It's all good and you can embrace it. It can be someone who abused you. 
It can be your giving in to sinful temptation. All of that and more in a very complicated spaghetti mess is what is at work between how God made and how sin distorted. And the cross stands between the two to say, you are so much more than your sin. You can have victory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Jesus died to redeem you. Last objection, how can God be condemning of this when he created same-sex desire and it is not good that man should be alone? Well, the answer is that the institution of the family in Genesis 2 is not a justification for homosexual connection. In fact, it is a declaration that there's only one way for that kind of aloneness to be met, and that is in the context of marriage. I believe that we in the evangelical church have promoted marriage over singleness in an idolatrous manner. I will say much more of this when we get to chapter 7. The bottom line of all of these objections is that people will go to any length to have the Bible say what they want it to say. That's not true just for the person who wants to engage in same-sex relationships. This twisting of the Bible to say what we want it to say easily is tempting for all of us in justifying our own sin. So why are we here? Why did we get to this spot where we spend so much time just on that, those two phrases at the end of verse 9? Well, let me give you my picture of what's happened. Marriage becomes a source of pain from which we want to be relieved. And so in the 60s, divorce laws were liberalized. Evangelicals divorced at a rate nearly identical with everyone else. As a result, millions of children are scarred, their sexual identity is confused, the emotional pain is overwhelming, and the reticence, the hesitance of people to marry grows among the young. I don't know if you're aware of this, but many, many young people don't want to get married, and if they do get married, they don't want to have children. And how's that going to work out for the thriving of culture? Meanwhile, people, especially evangelicals, remarry and carry the cycle around a few more times. So that now the only people anxious for marriage are those who see it as forbidden fruit. And the Obergefell decision has now given that the status of law of the land. The society at large not really seeing much value in the institution of marriage and feeling a bit guilty at denying anyone anything tends toward increasingly legitimizing all kinds of lifestyles and behaviors. And we can't ignore the influence of the media on these counts either, can we? Consider the way that television or movies or the online uh, depictions of uh, stories portray the real nuclear family. Dad in a mother and father family, dad is regarded as a doofus, a complete idiot, or perhaps a murderous fool. Whenever I'm watching a, uh, a mystery and there's somebody that's like a, let's say a pastor on the show, I know who the murderer is right? Don't you? 
But notice how the media portrays what they term more diverse families. They're all peace and light and wonder and everything goes fine for them. The only problem that they encounter is from those weirdos like pastors or people in more biblically understood families not accepting them. Recognize that they want us to accept divorce so they make us laugh at it. They want us to accept remarriage, living together, homosexuality, gay marriage, so they make us laugh at it. And the stupid ones are always those bigots who think that one man married to one woman for as long as they live is the way to go. My dear friends and brothers and sisters, we need to lose our arrogance about trusting the world's values. How should the church respond? Well, I love that phrase in verse 11, such were some of you. This is the church made up of broken people that are redeemed. You were washed. The idea of the washing of regeneration, the new birth. But it also, that word always carries with it the connotation of one's baptism. The idea of recalling that moment when we were baptized in water as a stake in the ground saying, I'm denying myself and I'm going to live for Christ. You were sanctified. The work of the triune God on our behalf for our holiness is lost and ignored these days. Our pastors read a book a few years ago that was written by William Culbertson, the president of the Moody Bible Institute in the 1960s. And it was called God's Provision for Holy Living. Little tiny book, but filled with great truth. It taught, he, he writes about God the Father's provision for our holy living. God the Son's provision for our holy living. God the Spirit's provision for our holy living. It's amazing what God has done on our behalf. And I wish I had the time to share it all with you. But the fact is, we can have victory through our triune God's work on our behalf. You were justified, it says. Think upon the cross of our Lord Jesus. He has made us right with God. So the church ought to respond, first of all, by recognizing who we are. Secondly, a readiness to welcome the sinner. We have two approaches. You don't know Jesus? We're not going to try to change you. You just come and hear the gospel and let, we're going to let Jesus do that changing. But those who make the claim to be a Christian... We are going to call you to holiness, to change, and we work together at identifying how we can help each other grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to have a readiness to say that change is possible. You know, once a person says, I can't help it and God cannot give me victory, we can't win over sin. But as long as we say, you know what? God can give me the victory, and I will join this fight for, sin, for, for victory. We can win. And a readiness to proclaim the cross as the agent of that change. Well, what happened at the cross? I want to conclude my words by sharing this hymn with you. Afflicted saint to Christ draw near, your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word 
you can believe that as your days, your strength shall be. As long as your days go, God's going to give you strength. That's what that as your days, your strength will be means. Your faith is weak. Your foes are strong. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. Should persecution rage and flame, still trust in your Redeemer's name. In fiery trials, you shall see that as your days, your strength shall be. When called to bear your weighty cross, or sore affliction, pain, or loss, or deep distress, or poverty, still as your days, your strength shall be. And then the refrain, so sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce. But the victory's won. God shall supply all your need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. We cannot compromise to say that what the Bible calls sin is no longer sin. The entire point of this passage is for us to lose our arrogance about trusting the world's values instead of the Bible's. Let's pray. Now, God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take this time that we've gathered around your word and help every one of us that's in the battle for sin. It doesn't matter what the sin issue is. Lord, help us to look to our washing, that we were made new by regeneration of the Holy Spirit who've put their faith in Christ, and that we would recall our baptisms as the stake in the ground when we said we're denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus. That we would recognize your sanctification work in us to change our habits by the power of the Holy Spirit and that we would remember our justification in our Lord Jesus Christ who took away our sin. Oh Lord, we pray that we would fight the good fight that we may win victory over sin. Now, Lord, there are those here who've never put their faith in Christ. I pray if they're not ready to make that decision, they'd stay with us. We're not gonna try to change their lives, Lord. We pray you would do that work as you bring the gospel near to them. And we would pray humbly that you would guide them in this journey so that they would trust in Christ, repenting of their sin and turning toward Jesus asking him to forgive them by what he did at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Two verses we began our service with that I'll leave you with now. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God bless you all.